Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll discuss the final witness testimonies in the state's case against Rittenhouse, as well as the testimony of the first defense witness, Nicholas Smith. Our discussion of this week's witnesses is coming up right after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks for joining us again. Hi, Carrie. Good to talk to you. So this week, we saw the end of the state's case and the beginning of the defense case in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. We started our week with the testimony of Detective Ben Antaramian. What did you make of his testimony as a witness? You know, he was fine as far as he went. I thought he was another prosecution witness who was good for the defense. And all I just kept thinking throughout the end of the prosecution's case was what an anticlimax and what a missed opportunity. Why didn't they show that enhanced video in opening statements? That would have been the time. That that should be the lens through which a jury views the prosecution's case. You know, instead they waited till the end. The testimony from Antaramian about Grosskreutz's unwillingness to cooperate with the investigation, did that give you any pause or cause you any second thoughts on your assessment of the prosecution's preparation of Grosskreutz or how they handled him as a witness? That's a good question. But in short, no, not really. You know, a witness's unwillingness to work with the police doesn't necessarily equate to that same witness's unwillingness to work with the prosecution, with lawyers. Now, you know, I understand that he had lawyered up, but so what? You know, oftentimes there can be an arrangement made between counsel, between his lawyer and Binger and Binger's associates. I don't have the answer to the question, but no, that doesn't take the prosecution off the hook. He may have been unwilling to talk to the police, but still could have been prepared. I mean, frankly, especially because apparently he has a civil lawsuit. It was in his interest, it seems to me, and certainly his lawyer would have told him this, to do a good job at the criminal trial for the prosecution. It's not hurtful to him to do a good job in the prosecution. And maybe I don't know, but it 
would have made sense for the prosecution to lean very, very hard on Mr. Grosskreutz to come in and get prepared and that the prosecution wasn't going to hurt him. They didn't want him to look like a bad witness. They wanted him to shine. I just think he was a persuadable witness. And this is what prosecutors do for a living. They work with witnesses who are not eager to testify. No witness is eager to testify. It's it's not fun. It's not pleasant. Prosecutors learn how to persuade, cajole, encourage witnesses to come in, be prepared, and be the best witness they can be. And I can't believe that they couldn't have done that with that witness who survived the shooting. It still boggles my mind. The prosecution also continued to enter more videos into evidence. And again, I couldn't see any real reason for the entry of those videos, with the exception of that drone video, which they didn't find until a few days ago, which is really stunning given that they they had over a year to prepare the case. That didn't make any sense to me. And as well, this is not my area of expertise, but technology is a wonderful tool for a decently resourced prosecution office. And I would have thought that with all of the video that was collected in this case, they would have used some technology to enhance it and should have shown that video during opening statements. Why not? What's the downside? Even if they didn't know exactly what their theory was, how could they not capture a killing in an opening statement for the jury to have that as a lens? I don't know why they did not take up that opportunity. It was too late. In other words, too late by the time they showed it. This is a good segue into the next two witnesses, James Armstrong and Dr. Doug Kelly. James Armstrong, as you mentioned, was the video technician and Doug Kelly was a medical examiner. It's a good segue because the combination of that drone video slowed down by James Armstrong and the testimony of Kelly about the number and order of shots fired at Rosenbaum were the best testimony that I've heard in this trial to date of the sequence by which Joseph Rosenbaum was killed and the either eagerness or lack of experience that led Rittenhouse to fire those four shots, including the third or fourth shot, which hit Rosenbaum in the back as he was falling down. And any number of those shots could have hit Richie McGinnis, who, as we see in the video, is standing almost directly behind Rosenbaum. The failure of the prosecution to just zero in on that and ask about that repeatedly and from different angles was probably, to me, the greatest failure in their case. That's interesting. I don't know if I can pick the greatest failure. I don't mean to sound glib about that. But even the doctor's testimony, which was good in a way because it wasn't well developed by the prosecution, was turned around rather artfully by the defense about which way Rosenbaum would have been falling after the first shot. And it sort of countered the number of shots. The prosecution really should have lingered on the shots that caused Rosenbaum's death. They were the needless shots. And yet it sort of wasn't handled in that way. And of course, the defense made good use of the kind of weapon it was and how quickly the rounds would be fired. But that was something that the prosecution could have anticipated and muted in the direct examination. The doctor also was able to testify to way more 
than I thought he should have, especially on cross-examination. And again, I was stunned by the lack of objections. They really let the doctor go on and on about things that a medical examiner wouldn't necessarily know. I mean, he should talk about the injuries, absolutely. But I thought a lot of that testimony that came out on cross was speculative. You know, the doctor sort of going beyond the doctor's expertise to talk about the effect of a firearm. Going back for a moment to Detective Antaramian's testimony, Sharofsky was able to get in on cross-examination the video of Rosenbaum using the N-word in confronting an armed individual. And much has been made during the trial and in the aftermath of the trial that Rosenbaum used that epithet as a way of undermining his character and kind of dehumanizing him and creating an impression that he deserved to be shot. What did you make of all that? I was surprised that the judge let that in. I don't know what relevance it has. If there's any value to it at all in terms of proof, it's way outweighed by the prejudice and it's a decedent. And I would have thought the judge might have been a bit more protective. The judge was protective in some of his evidentiary rulings about other aspects of Rosenbaum and Huber as well. But don't you think that Binger opened the door on redirect by referencing that clip? I mean, this was another, I thought, unforced error by Binger. He made reference to that clip and Sharofsky only played it after Binger referenced it. Yes, I would call that an unforced error. That's fair. It's bad, though, for the prosecution. And frankly, what it makes me think, though, is how at odds it was with how protective the judge was of the defense first witness, Mr. Smith. The judge was very protective about the cross-examination you know, by the state and not letting them get into the details of Mr. Smith's prior record. It was a strange contrast. If it's character evidence, evidence of bad character, it's a very different calculus when it's the accused. That's where the prejudice is the greatest. That was just a defense witness. A decedent, there might be a little more care, not quite as much as the accused. I thought that was a peculiar ruling by the judge. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I begin by discussing Prosecutor James Krause's ham-fisted attempt to use video evidence in questioning Dr. Doug Kelly, a forensic pathologist with the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office. Krause plays footage that contains four different videos from different perspectives that are playing in sync with one another. That's actually footage of the shooting of Rosenbaum. And by doing that, it gives Kelly an opportunity to articulate why, in his opinion, the defense explanation of the shot sequencing doesn't stand up to forensic scrutiny. 
there was an opportunity there to pin Kelly down and to go through things slowly. But instead, Krauss just sort of muddied it up and made it even more confusing. And it was sort of emblematic of the way that the prosecution squandered narrative opportunities throughout the course of their case. That's fair. You know, if you have good pictures, that's compelling evidence. It's more compelling than anything else. Well, and you know how to use those pictures, right? Like There were so many times during the course of witness testimony in this case that you and I found ourselves wondering, what are they doing here? What story are they telling? And, you know, when you get to the end of their case and they present these videos and they still don't take a second by second, moment by moment look at what is happening in these videos and present and try to persuade the jury that this evidence adds up to this narrative. Instead, they just sort of threw spaghetti at the wall. That's how it's felt in the witnesses they've called, in the level of preparation, in the order of witnesses and evidence. There needed to be much more orchestration of the prosecution's case. They actually have a really good story to tell. You know, I can't believe that, you know, they keep resorting back to nobody else killed anybody that night. That's just not a good narrative, but they cling to it to the bitter end so far. And as we've discussed previously, they could have, and they should have owned the character problems that they had with the people who were shot. They could have owned that and still made a case for Rittenhouse's culpability. Agreed. And, you know, I'll have to see how it's argued in closing. But again, less than perfect witnesses and or alleged victims are not unusual for prosecutors. That's part of the gig. And you need to come clean about it in order to argue persuasively to a jury. Then we have the motion to dismiss the curfew violation charge that happens as the prosecution is resting its case. And to his credit, Judge Bruce Schrader asks Binger if he wants to cure any lack of evidence that he's presented on that count. And Binger declines to present any more evidence. What did you think happened there? I was mystified. First of all, the judge really should not have allowed the prosecution to reopen. The defense made the correct motion, essentially generically known as a motion for judgment of acquittal. There wasn't sufficient evidence presented on that count. They had to know that they didn't present sufficient evidence for that count. And they also had to know whether they were inclined to do that or not when the judge gave them the opportunity. They just should have said, judge, we will now process that charge or we will move to dismiss that charge. I mean, there was a break. The judge gave them a chance to think about it and they thought about it and they came back and they said, yeah, we are not going to give you any more evidence. Here's the thing. There is an evidentiary device called judicial notice. Now, Probably some person in authority in government had issued that curfew. I mean, all you have to do really is present the documentation and ask the judge to take judicial notice based on some document you could probably get off the internet that there was, in fact, a curfew in place. It's not a hard one because here's the thing. Don't charge it. You know, you end up with a multiple count indictment and it includes charges that don't go anywhere. That's a bad look for the state. 
it looks like they're overcharging and are just trying to throw the book at somebody with no proof. And that charge was kind of a cheesy charge anyhow in a homicide case. Really? You want to convict this guy for violating a curfew? You know, he killed two people and seriously injured a third. I think it was a bad choice in the first place to even bring that curfew charge. It's too silly. As the week ended, we heard from Nicholas Smith, one of Rittenhouse's associates on the night of the 25th of August, 2020. What did you make of his testimony? He clobbered the prosecution. Here's the other narrative misstep, you know, aside from the prosecution trying its case on the theory that nobody else shot and killed anybody that night. They also had this subplot that Kyle Rittenhouse came to Kenosha for no good reason. He was a kind of officious busybody who was full of himself and acted like a vigilante. And Mr. Smith kind of blew that theory out of the water by saying he was essentially invited. You know, whether we believe him or not doesn't matter. From what I heard, he testified perfectly credibly and plausibly that he had worked for the car source owners and that they asked him or invited him to come down and and help out and that that's how Rittenhouse ended up being there. That was pretty good for the defense. So in other words, Mr. Rittenhouse was not this interloper, this outsider. And on cross-examination, Binger didn't seem to do anything. I was completely confused as to why he was even up there asking questions. Agreed. And Carrie, I I hate to sound like some kind of law professor, but my goodness, it was a really bad cross-examination. Now, you know, prosecutors are not known for their cross-examination skills. You know, quite often criminal defense lawyers don't put on much of a defense case. We're much better at criticizing and critiquing than we are at offering full-blown defense theories, except, of course, in self-defense cases. So Binger should have anticipated that there would be witnesses and should have actually prepared a cross-examination. I got no sense that he was going off of any notes, any points. He intended to make. There were relatively few leading questions that were asked. There were many open-ended questions. I mean, it was the kind of cross-examination that would result in a student in a trial advocacy class getting a pretty poor grade, frankly. And again, there was no theory of the case in asking the questions. That's what I mean by he was making no points. So the purpose of cross-examination, which the defense has illustrated well, is to make points Sometimes they are affirmative points, meaning they further your theory of the case. Sometimes they are more destructive points if you're going after a witness's credibility. The prosecution didn't make any points consistent with their theory, at least not points that were easily discernible, and didn't do anything to damage the credibility of the witness if that was their intent. They did nothing of any purpose with Smith. In fact, they asked questions, Binger, the prosecution, as if it was a discovery-oriented hearing, as if they were interested to see what the witness might say because they had no idea. That, that's not the purpose of cross-examination. It was aimless at best. And the one area that seemed to be built upon a theory was when Binger sought to differentiate between the witnesses' sentiments about the necessity of firearms and the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse that night. But even there, that was easily cured by Sharafasi when Sharafasi says, well, did the defendant have a different set of experiences than you had that night? And so could his perspective on that be 
affected by that. Yes. And that totally rebutted the suggestion, you know, as it were, by the prosecution that Smith was somehow a wiser or more cautious person. Also, Smith was armed, felt compelled to arm himself. That was useful to the defense. But the real low point of Smith's testimony for the prosecution was Smith's ability to offer up the hearsay testimony of Kyle Rittenhouse that he had to shoot. He had to shoot. Smith must have said that three, four times. Now, why is that hearsay? Because in a criminal trial, statements by a party opponent are non-hearsay. They're what's called admissions. So the prosecution can introduce whatever statements it wants by Kyle Rittenhouse, because Mr. Rittenhouse is the party opponent. The defense can't introduce through its own witnesses statements by the defendant. That's just hearsay. That's not statements by a party opponent. That's the defense getting out statements by the defendant. Now, I suppose they could have tried to offer up those statements by Mr. Rittenhouse, which are incredibly important to the defense theory. I had to shoot. I had to. That's entirely consistent with the defense theory of self-defense. I suppose they could have tried to get those statements in under an exception to the hearsay rule. So in other words, it wouldn't be non-hearsay as in an admission, but I suppose it could have been characterized as a spontaneous or excited utterance, but I doubt it. I doubt the judge would have allowed it in, but the prosecution never objected. So it came in multiple times and I think it was pretty compelling. It's very interesting, Abby. Well, we've got a bunch of other witnesses coming up next week for the defense as a prelude to Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony. I want to take this opportunity to call attention to something that Kyle Rittenhouse did this week. This week, Kyle Rittenhouse published a tweet. And in that tweet, there was a video of him shooting a machine gun, dozens of rounds of ammunition in an indoor gun range. And at the end of that video, he flashes two thumbs up and he says, Joe Biden, you're not coming for our guns. And the text of the tweet itself says, come and take them, Joe. Now, as I've said to you, Abby, I am very much inclined to say that the jury was beyond justified to acquit Kyle Rittenhouse of the charges, particularly based on the state's case. And perhaps even beyond the state's case, whether the state had put on its best case possible, it's quite likely that the jury should have acquitted Rittenhouse. And I have to say that if I were just watching this trial, I would feel sorry for Kyle Rittenhouse. But knowing that he sent that tweet with the awareness that he killed two people and seriously injured another, and that a gunman in Uvalde, Texas, using a near identical weapon to the weapon he used on August 25th, killed over 20 children and their teachers, I am beyond disgusted. And I saw a quote from former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh that captured it for me. Walsh wrote on Twitter, initially, I felt sorry for this kid, and I sincerely hoped he'd get wise counsel from adults and get his life together. I no longer feel sorry for him, and he's not a kid, and he's gone. That really says it all. Yeah, that's really interesting and very disturbing. I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse becomes the poster boy for, you know, white guys and guns. It's not good. If I was his lawyer, I would say, you know what? Be really thankful for the not guilty and lay low. Go live your life. You know, disassociate from these people. They weren't a very good influence on you. Consider yourself lucky. But boy, yeah, it's a kind of disturbing turn. 
Well, Abby, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks. Me too. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we continue our examination of testimonies offered by the defense witnesses. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.